Justice Brennan said he was one of the very few geniuses he ever met. He was definitely a genius. And that permitted him to do all of his court work and have this second life. Welcome back to Amicus Slate's podcast about the courts and the law. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover these things at Slate. And this is our very last in the summer book series featuring writers and books we may have missed in the hustle and bustle of the daily news cycle all year. When next we meet, we will be on the downhill run to the first Monday in October and a brand spanking new Supreme Court term. Thank you for hanging out with us and with some really cool books and guests this summer. And thank you to our Slate Plus members who support all the work that we do and who have only a couple of weeks to go until they get more awesome Amicus exclusive bonus segments with me and Mark Joseph Stern. And if you are not a Slate Plus member yet, you can find out more at slate.com slash Amicus Plus. But back to the business of our annual summer book club. Today's guest is Judge Margaret McEwen. Her new book is Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas. Judge McEwen profiled Justice Douglas in part because he was the most controversial member of the Supreme Court. The guy survived two impeachments, married four women, lived larger than life, and spent 36 years on the bench. But he was also a crusader for environmental rights in ways that blurred all sorts of lines between judging and lobbying and political activism. It feels wonderfully on the nose to be thinking about some of these issues right now, but we wanted to be clear, we'll be talking about those issues by sticking to the history, because though we sometimes forget when we're talking about the Supreme Court, judges and justices are bound by ethical canons that preclude them from discussing hot-button political issues of the day. Which means, dear listeners, Judge McEwen really cannot discuss current scandals and concerns. Judge Margaret McEwen has served for almost 25 years as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an affiliated scholar at the Center for the American West at Stanford University, and she is jurist in residence at the University of San Diego School of Law. Judge Margaret McEwen, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Amicus. Thank you. Happy to be here. And happy to see you again, Dahlia. It's so good to be with you. And I guess we should note that we have known each other, you and I, for quite some time. And also that it's always a treat to have a judge on the show. And we always say, judges, talk, (laughs) because it's important to hear from you. But I did want to start, if I could, with this question of Westernness. It pervades both the book about Douglas and also your own story. You write in the book that for Justice Douglas, quote, his soul was grounded in the West. And then you note for yourself that as somebody who was a Wyoming native, you've always been drawn to the outdoors. I've never known you not to be talking about hiking in the mountains. This idea of Westernness really means something in a way. I think it comes up less and less often now. Sometimes we nod to it when we talk about Justice Gorsuch writing about tribal issues. But being a Westerner is really a thing. It's a way of thinking and organizing the world. It's certainly dominated Justice Douglas's worldview. So my question to you is, tell me what Westernness means to you. And do these kind of regional distinctions still matter at the court? They used to matter so very much to have a Western justice. Does it still matter today? 
let me start with your last question. I think it does matter today. And of course, we've had very few justices from the West. And when I say the far West, I think of Justice Kennedy, of course. When Douglas was being considered for the court, uh, Roosevelt definitely wanted a Westerner for political reasons. By that time, of course, we all know that Douglas had been off to Columbia Law School. He'd been a law professor. He'd worked in Washington, D.C. So he was a bit far from the West physically, but not in his soul. So that was important to Roosevelt. Roosevelt knew there were some other com potential competitors out there. But Brandeis had given the nod to Justice Douglas also. And so that's who uh, Roosevelt chose. Well, what does Westerness mean? To me, it's a part of who you are when you grow up, uh, depending on your nature. It's your connection to the land, your connection to the rivers, the waters, the forest, wide open spaces, and also to a sense of freedom that one might not have in a crowded city. So it has both a physical and a spiritual aspect to it. And the more I read Douglas's writings and learned about what he had been doing, um, I identified with his connection with the West. Of course, he grew up in a small town a couple hours from Seattle called Yakima, Washington. Someone jokingly put up a sign, the Palm Springs of Washington outside <laughs> Yakima. So I won't comment on that except to say he grew up there and from his porch he could see Mount Rainier and he could see Mount Adams. And as a kid he had polio, although that's been disputed, but there's no doubt he was skinny and sickly. So to overcome that, he started going out in the mountains and he started hiking. And he was a prodigiously fast hiker. So that really shaped, I think, who he was and then who he became on the court as well. One of the things that I really noticed is that in addition to being defined by his, I guess we're just going to call it Westernness. The other thing that really shoots through your whole book is a way in which he was also very defined by class, that he saw himself as, you know, the kid of, you know, hard scrabble working parents. He had multiple jobs at multiple times. You know, his dad died when he was extremely young. And, you know, he's here, he is like jumping the rails to get to Columbia Law School, and there's somehow sheep involved, and he's feeling like a fraud at law school with all these elites, and then he feels like a fraud at his law firm, and then again in the academy. I mean, he just has this kind of outsider view aligning himself with what you describe as the little guy. And that seems to be something that carries through his whole life. And so I wonder if you could also, in addition to the ways in which being from Washington State shapes him, the ways in which being from, you know, what he always felt was the opposite of privilege also shapes this unique kind of brand of both libertarianism and environmentalism that he brings to bear in his work. He always said that he had two abiding themes, I suppose, or 
mantras in his life. One was that you need to save wilderness because once it's gone, it's lost. And the second one echoes what you just talked about. He said that the role of the Constitution was to get the government off the backs of little people. And when he grew up out in Yakima, which was a very rural area, he, he worked with migrant workers in the fields picking fruit. Uh, he worked in little stores in the town. As you say, he rode the rails to Columbia Law School part of the way tending some sheep on their way to Minneapolis. And when he gets to law school, he doesn't have any money. So he actually gets signed up to create a business law course for undergraduates. But he doesn't even know anything about business law at that point. He hasn't even been to law school. But he does that job. And he, so he's always working his way up and always feeling a little bit outside of society. Even when he went to undergraduate school, he went to Whitman College he was president of his fraternity, but again, he was always looking for some way to fit in. And I thought it was interesting. His mother called him treasure, which is kind of sweet. But more importantly, she had one goal for him, and that was to be president of the United States. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of his political forays. But all of this is to say that he's little, he's skinny, um, he's bullied. But by the time he gets to Washington, I think he takes on uh, a much more self-confident, at least externally self-confident veneer. He starts hobnobbing with political people. He goes to embassy parties. He plays poker with President Roosevelt. So all of a sudden, this kid who was an outsider was brought inside. He wasn't wholly comfortable in that. And one of his big advocates was Joe Kennedy. When Douglas comes down to D.C. from Yale, he hooks up with Joe Kennedy at the SEC. And Kennedy takes a real shine to him and Kennedy was also one of the people promoting him when Roosevelt was trying to figure out who next to appoint to the Supreme Court. So I think I have to ask the obvious question, which is that you are, you know, a, a working federal appellate judge. You chose to write a book, and then you chose to write a <laughs> book about this guy, somebody who a lot of us dismiss as, you know, somebody who married a few too many times and the women got younger and younger and was writing shocking things in Playboy. <laughs> but that's not the story you wanted to tell. You write um, that your book is in no way an attempt to dissect this complicated personality or engage in critique of his opinions. You just want to sort of trace the arc of the imprint he had on the environmental world we live in today. I mean, the ways in which he shaped the country. And I guess I'd love for you to just give us a sense of what it is that told you you had to write this book. Well, it's a good question because, of course, as you know, my job is writing opinions, not books. Uh, but I really stumbled on this, and the book really turned out to come about as a lark. I was out snowshoeing in Grand Teton National Park, 
And I came across this homestead that I hadn't seen before. And snow was piled high to the roof. I couldn't even figure out how to get down from the snowbank when a guy came out of a little cabin. And I said, where am I? And he said, you're at the Murray Ranch. And I all-knowingly said, oh, yeah, I know John Muir. And he said, no, no, Murray, M-U-R-I-E. And I had to confess that even having grown up in Wyoming, I didn't know this homestead, and I didn't know Murray. So it turned out Murray, Olas Murray, and his wife, Marty Murray, were very well-known conservationists in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they had this homestead in Wyoming. He had been president and executive director of the Wilderness Society. So the ranch was called Wilderness's Home. That got me somewhat intrigued. So I learned a little bit more about the Murrays. And in their archives, I discovered a letter from Justice Douglas. And basically, he says to the Murrays, you have this fabulous homestead and ranch you should give it to the National Park Service as a memorial for nature, which I thought was a little presumptuous. But that sparked my curiosity. Well, how did this justice from the Supreme Court know these fairly humble but a very effective conservationists? And then I decided, well, let me find out. So I went to the Library of Congress. I spent hours with the Douglas Papers. Then I went to the Wilderness Society Papers, and then the Sierra Club, and then the Murray Ranch. And pretty soon I was on uh, really just a fun journey. I had no intention to write a book, but I continued to spend more and more time in Douglas's papers. Now, he was a total pack rat. And as you know from having looked at some of these papers of justices, it's a real revelation and joy to sit there in the Library of Congress and see their yellow pads with their handwritten opinions, the little notes they write to each other, um, notes that Douglas wrote. So I began to see that there was something bigger here than the Murrays and Douglas. And although I had not planned to write a book, I began to see this theme emerge about Douglas and his dual life. Supreme Court justice, conservation advocate. So I wrote a little article about one of the anniversaries of one of his many protest hikes, one along the Washington coast. And after that, several historians and academics said, well, you should write a book. Well, I hadn't decided to write a book, but I hadn't quit researching either. So I just continued to go, you know, to Berkeley, to the University of Washington, LBJ Library, the Yale Library, other places, until really the research was done and then COVID hit. So at that point, I had virtually all the research and I got an agent and I sat down and wrote the book. And that's how it came about. Time now for a short break. And now let's get back to my conversation with Judge Margaret McEwen of the Ninth Circuit about her book, Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas. So, Judge, you've just actually flicked at this dualism that you were trying to probe. The, the title is Citizen Justice, and it certainly highlights, I think, the paradox that you wanted to think about, which is at the end of the day, Justice Douglas just saw himself as a citizen, and he was a citizen in his view, mm -hmm. who was entitled to advocate for the stuff that he believed in passionately. I mean, he was kind of the Lorax, and he felt 
that everybody else was asleep. And he wanted to do that, incidentally, despite the fact that he had a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's just hard not to frame this against this question of justices who are just citizens. I mean, they really are. And judges are citizens, too. And you have passions and interests. And I I think it's such an interesting thing that you, you really directly say, in Douglas's view, as a citizen, he had a right to champion the environment so long as it didn't interfere with the work of the court. That really is kind of the existential tension of being a judge and caring desperately as a citizen, right? Right. That, to me, was the real revelation here. And, you know, I spent 10 years on the Federal Ethics Committee and four years as chair. So I had this ethical radar as I was doing my research. This book title, Citizen Justice, comes from that quotation. He saw himself as a citizen. And early in his career, the Supreme Court considered a case involving the question of, should federal judges pay income tax? And the answer was, yes, of course. And after that, he made a little notation in his diary that said he had just voted himself citizenship and that he could be a citizen justice as long as it didn't interfere with the court. Well, to my mind, that was the conundrum and the tension throughout his life is when does it interfere with his life on the court? I will say he had a quite expansive view, of course, because although he had this connection with nature, he really began what I call his hiking and hollering career back in Washington, D.C., not Washington State. And that's when the Park Service had decided to put a highway or a big road down to the CNO Canal in Washington, D.C. And Douglas was outraged. So he writes a letter, Supreme Court stationery, to the Washington Post editors who had endorsed the idea and said, this is a very bad idea. This is a sanctuary. It deserves protection. And you should come with me to hike this 189-mile canal, and then you'll agree with me. Well, they did come. The editors came and other people came. Douglas did a 189-mile hike. The editors didn't, of course, make it that far. Only nine people did the whole hike, and one of those was Olas Muri from Wyoming, and that's how they met. But Douglas was also a genius for publicity. Um, You often see him with a a camera around his neck, very iconic photos of Douglas. And his friend, uh, law professor and friend, Charlie Reich, said Douglas loved to take photos but he liked nothing more than to have people take photos of him. So the hike goes from the top of the canal down to Washington, D.C., where we see photos of him met by the head of the National Park Service, of course, carefully arranged for a photo opportunity. And he then begins an organization, Friends of the Canal. He becomes the chair, of course, And they began lobbying the Park Service, Congress, and everybody for years. And eventually, the CNO Canal becomes a National Historic Park. And he did save the CNO Canal, which is a real treasure 
for both those who live in Washington, D.C. and people like me who visit and love to go to the canal. And if you just hop down off of Georgetown's Main Street, you see the beginning of the canal, and there's a bust there of Douglas, which celebrates his work on the canal. But I think that unleashed something in him that had been bottled up because then he was like a maniac on the road, protesting here, protesting there. The number of hikes and projects he had are, are really, uh, you're unable to count them all because you can see glimpses of them in his correspondence. He, he might have been going after the Algash. He might have been working uh, in Maine, and then he would be working about pesticides in New Jersey or the Red River Gorge in Kentucky or, or some river in Arkansas or the brush in Texas. He was all over the country working with conservation groups and advocating for primarily preservation of wilderness. Of course, we have to remember that following World War II, there's this euphoria with cars and highways. And roads and highways were his nemesis because he felt that they invaded these places that were spiritual and should have remained as sanctuaries. So you see that theme he wrote nearly 50 books, like it's a book a year, which is pretty amazing while he's on the Supreme Court. But I also think um, he needed the money. He did have some alimony payments. Alimony. And <laughs> as today and then, federal employees and federal judges were really not paid in parity with the private economy. So it was very helpful for him to write articles, as you mentioned, Playboy. He wrote for Playboy because he thought that young men read Playboy, and he wanted to reach young men. But he also wrote for the women of America. He wrote for Good Housekeeping and other magazines that women read because he wanted them to realize that there was a threat to the environment, that in their hometowns, in their small enclaves, that they could be activists also. I have like 50 questions uh, arising from what you just said. But one of the things that I do think is so interesting is you mentioned sort of later on in the book that his own law clerks didn't always know about his political and advocacy activities. Like he really did in his head have a wall between what he was doing on the bench and in his written work and some of the, you know, stuff that he was doing as a citizen. And it's really interesting that that was kind of the bargain he made with himself was, you know, he didn't sweep, you know, his clerks into it. And and you describe his chambers as being like a one man advocacy shop. But at the same time, you know, his chambers were his chambers. And then he'd hie off to Alaska uh, to do one of his, you know, hikes. And, and, and as you also note, it seems to me he was a genius about managing the press. And you say in the book, this was in an era where justices did not go on television. They did not put themselves out there. And here he was going on you know, TV shows and yucking it up on, on you know, all sorts of, of, of venues. He so deftly 
played the press that you almost think that one of the reason people were mad at him was he was just really good at this. <laughs> well, that certainly his colleagues had a number of reasons um, to either, if not be mad, be discomfited by him. And certainly the press was probably one reason. I mean, interviewed by Eric Severide, um, he also was on What's My Line, a little bit unusual. They did guess that he was a Supreme Court justice on that uh, TV show. But the justices at that time didn't write autobiographies particularly, nor did they go on television. And we now see that that has changed dramatically because we see the justices being interviewed, having documentaries made, and many of them have written um, autobiographies plus other uh, usually related legal books. So it really changed where uh, he was pretty much of a loner back then in so many ways. And he was operating in a way because he... The press loved him because he would talk to the press. And as you know, when the press calls most judges or justices, the answer is, I'm unable to comment. I appreciate your reporting, Dahlia, but I am unable to comment. So Douglas, you're right. He, he had, in a way, this split personality. I was surprised. Uh, one of the very fun things about the book, apart from spending countless hours in the archives, which I loved, uh, was doing the interviews. And I interviewed almost all of his living clerks. Um, Kathy Douglas, uh, his wife, was exceedingly generous with photos and with talking with me. I went to the last reunion of the Douglas clerks. But talking both to clerks, to academics across the country, others who knew Douglas, that really brought a lot of texture, I thought, to the research. But the clerk, surprisingly, until later, had no idea about this vast undertaking for the environment. They knew he was conservationist. They knew he had done the CNO Canal. And he hiked the CNO Canal almost every Sunday that he was in Washington. And the clerks sometimes would come along on those hikes. They'd often have an annual hike. But apart from that, they really didn't know about all of these activities. He had two secretaries. We now call them judicial assistants. But he had two secretaries, and they were kept busy. Because you could see this correspondence from Mrs. So-and-so from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm worried about the pesticides. Or from somebody else about the sagebrush in Wyoming. Boom. Douglas was back at it writing to them. And the correspondence is amazing. I think he was a canary in a coal mine because he was warning about pesticides. He was warning about dams being detrimental to the fish. Uh, he was worried about air pollution and noise pollution. He wrote one opinion in which he talked about DDT and the pesticide. And two years later, Rachel Carson in Silent Spring actually detailed that opinion. And of course, she too was warning about pesticides and the environment. So he was there in an age when the word environmental was not really used. It wasn't used in the Supreme Court 
until 1970, at least in the way we think about it. And you can guess which justice first used it. That was Justice Douglas, of course. The word conservation was more common, but as the environmental movement went through different stages, they began to use the word environmental and environmentalist. And I concluded that he was like a band leader, really, for the conservationists and for the environmental movement. They loved him. Not everyone who worked in his chambers loved him because he could be a tyrant. And yet he could be incredibly gracious and friendly and warm and sympathetic. So he had this dual personality. He was a genius. Justice Brennan said he was one of the very few geniuses he ever met. He was definitely a genius. And that, I think, permitted him to do all of his court work and have this second life. You, you probably know, many of us know uh, from reading about him way back in law school, that he was a very fast writer. So he would dash off these opinions. Some people called them airplane specials. Maybe he was dashing them off on the airplane. But when he finished his work by the end of June, he had done his majority opinions. He had done his dissents. And even though the rest of the court wasn't done and there could be some additional memos, and of course there was no email, he would jump on the plane to Washington State and go to Goose Prairie, his beloved cabin outside Yakima, where you could look out and see from nearby, you could see Mount Rainier. So that did not endear him to his colleagues always. You mention in the book, and I've seen it elsewhere, that he would mock them because he could get his week's worth of of work done in four days, and he just thought they were slackers and suggested maybe you should fire your clerks because you're all lazy. And I can imagine that that's annoying. But I, I wonder if you've now mentioned a couple of categories of sort of extracurricular activities. And we haven't probed his actual wanting to be an elected official, like he wanted <laughs> to be vice president. And we haven't probed the kind of overt electioneering almost like he was trying to get himself named the vice president for quite some time quite aggressively in addition to that he was also as you noted he was you know playing poker with fdr he was advising both presidents kennedy and johnson he was lobbying folks in the park service he was expressly lobbying folks in congress this is very overt political activity that is separate and apart from what you talk about when we describe, you know, going on hikes and getting people activated. This is using the levers of power to effectuate political outcomes. Yes. I can't decide if that's better or worse than either the, you know, written pieces that are seem like very much advocacy or the actual advocacy when he's <laughs> leading protests. Is there any way to rank these on a sort of ethics scale of, I just think it all feels equally shocking to us right now. But some of it, it, it feels to me as though you're saying in the book that some of the backroom deals were almost more troubling than the stuff that was happening in the front page of the paper. Well, I, I think that um, 
Douglas was always advocating for transparency, and much of what he did was not transparent. And of course, we didn't have the Freedom of Information Act back then. It wouldn't have applied to the courts, but it would have applied to the agencies that he was talking to. So his political ambitions. Dahlia, maybe he's living out his mother's dream that he would be president. So Roosevelt had the decision as to who should be the vice president. And the story goes, there's a piece of paper, and it said either Truman Douglas or Douglas Truman, but we don't know. We do know that he chose Truman, and he, meaning Douglas, was always disclaiming, I have no interest in this. Fast forward when Roosevelt dies, and that's very hard on Douglas, because Douglas's father had died when he was six. So in some ways, Roosevelt was both a confidant and a father figure for him. We now have Truman in the White House, and Truman needs a vice president. He asked Douglas to be his vice president. And at that point, Douglas declines, and he tells people, why be number two to a number two? Which is really pretty strong language. At that point, I think he'd been on the court a while. He was a little bit bored, even after his first decade on the court and his first marriage was breaking up. He then had a almost fatal horse accident out near his cabin in Washington State. 1,600-pound horse, boom, falls on him, breaks 23 ribs. So I think he had time to reflect. And he comes out of that era, and he of course, declines the vice presidency. And he says that politics are ephemeral, the court is long and enduring, and he will stay on the court. Now, you have to place this in context of the time because there were other justices, Frankfurter and others, who were advising on very specific things. Frankfurter, of course, later very big in the Zionist movement, as was Brandeis, but they were advising the president on very specific things to do with the war and the war production board. And you see this in the papers. Douglas didn't do that so much as really be a friend to Roosevelt. And Roosevelt, I think, used him as a sounding board. But Douglas was not as overt as many of the others. And of course, we have Justice Jackson going off for a whole term, to be a prosecutor, which we all admire because of the outcome of the Nuremberg trials and the beginning of international law. But if you look at it in the context of separation of powers, there is something very unusual about that. One author said that up through the period of about the 50s, there was always one justice that had what he called the presidential bee and was always kind of angling the possibility to be president. So Douglas, I think, always thought of himself as someone who could be president or vice president. And later, he even toyed with the idea of being a vice president for Johnson, although Johnson... Uh, maybe did not see that eye to eye. So he was hobnobbing with the presidents uh, when it was important to have a presidential support 
for an environmental project, he would just whisper in the president's ear or write a note to the president's advisor. And of course, he could just walk down those stairs of the court and go over to Congress. He was particularly close to the Washington senators, Magnuson and Jackson, who were called the twin towers of power because of the amazing power they exercised in Congress, in large part because of their longevity and really being admired by their colleagues. So he was down there all the time lobbying about wilderness or whatever. But one of the things that always makes me smile is Douglas said, the court is a monastery. And I think, really? That is some monastery that you're living in. And Justice Frankfurter also repeats that. The court is a monastery. And uh, we have a seclusion here that is so important. So I would suggest there is a middle ground between living in a true monastery and being out there as Douglas was either advocating on the trail or advocating with the Washington Politico. So I think there is a role for judges um, to be out in the community. It's important. I think it's important for the public. I think it's important for the legitimacy of the courts and for uh, citizens to see judges as not just people up on a pedestal with a nice black robe. But I have to admit, I, I was very surprised because having gone to law school at a time when Justice Douglas was so active, particularly in the First Amendment and various civil liberties and other cases, I was not knowledgeable about all these environmental things he was doing. And yet, when you research all of them and put together, you get an amazing collage of the impact he had on the landscape. And it was tremendous. Let's take a brief break. More now with Judge Margaret McEwen about her book, Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas. I'm, I'm struck by you have a, a note during his impeachment hearings, Representative William Roth of Delaware criticizes him for giving speeches accusing the Army Corps of Engineers of, quote, despoiling our natural resources while appeals against the government's apparent environmental policies are pending on the docket. I mean, it's that much of an overt political action. And I, I love what you're saying, Judge, about how in some sense, he thought the cure for all this was being open and flagrant, right? <laughs> he was not hiding his activities. Right. Uh, he was very clear. I need the money. I'm publishing a book a year. I'm publishing everywhere. Uh, there was no hiding the ball, but that at the same time, there wasn't perfect transparency because we didn't know what was happening, as you said, behind the scenes. And that's, I think, the thing that that's harder to think about. I, I did want to ask you because you've you've referenced it in a couple of contexts, the ways in which things really changed post Watergate. And we had a kind of retrenchment, you know, 
justices, less apt to talk to the press, much, much quieter time. And then, you know, again, new ethics rules enforced on the court in the early 70s. And I guess I find myself wondering if the new ethics regime that came into place in the 1970s would have helped clarify some of these murky issues for Douglas, or if he just somehow lived beyond the trappings of whatever <laughs> the constraints were. Like it just, he was not fussed about any of these rules. And so even new kind of more coherent, more binding rules would probably not have fussed him at all because he just didn't much think he was bound by them. And by the way, you note he was opposed to a lot of the new ethics rules. Right. I mean, one of the rules he was opposed to were certain disclosure rules, because at first the Supreme Court had proposed that Douglas's or Justice's writings would have to be vetted, in effect, before they went out and would need to be reported. And Douglas said, vetting, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And reporting, well, if I have to report my income from writings, how about you report, meaning the other justices, any stock holdings you have? So he was a little bit prescient on that score. And when the federal disclosure rules did come into effect, Douglas disclosed. Now, he had no stock. He, he, he didn't have money at all. But he made a little asterisk, kind of a, I protest having to file this report. Um, but you have to remember that the equivalent of what we have today, uh, 28 U.S.C. Section 455, which is a federal statute, applies to both judges and justices, was in effect in a different form back then. And it required all the judges, uh, federal judges in the United States, to be conscious of appearances of propriety. So that was in effect, as well as the oath that every judge and justice takes going back to the founding of the country of requiring us to be fair. Now, his wife Kathy said as time went along, he began to be more cognizant and conscious of these appearance issues than he had been earlier. Although I didn't see that it actually stopped his protest hikes, particularly as I was trying to put it in a, a temporal scope. So I do think he took a very broad view on ethics, and it, to my mind, was most telescoped when he heard the famous case that people often refer to, do trees have standing, Sierra Club v. Morton. And of course, the issue there uh, was the Sierra Club was trying to stop a Disney ski resort in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And normally, if somebody sues, you need standing, meaning you have a right to go to the court. And so you say, well, one of my members likes to hike there, and they will be injured. Or we have cabins nearby, and they will be affected. The Sierra Club kind of rolled the dice and said, really, it's the mountain and the valley that would be affected. So the lower court said, that's right, stop the construction. 
And then the Ninth Circuit said, no, that is not a correct theory. And it goes to the Ninth Circuit, I mean, to the Supreme Court, and they say, to have standing, you have to have like a real person, a human who's been injured. So no, this theory doesn't fly. So a couple things come out of that. It's the first time the Sierra Club is a party in court. And years later, we see many of these organizations as parties in court. Douglas had actually been on the board of the Sierra Club about a decade earlier, and he had resigned, but he was still a life member. So when this case is in the court, he writes to the Sierra Club and says, I'm a life member, and I would like to resign my life membership that some case might come to the court. I don't know of any case. Imagine. Imagine it might, but if it did, I don't want to have to be recused. Well, that was disingenuous because the case was already coming up from the Ninth Circuit into the court. And he had been doing protest hikes with the Sierra Club really in the years just preceding that. A lot of gossip around the court. Should he recuse? Would he recuse? You can see that in the notes. Law clerks remember that, uh, both his law clerks and other law clerks. And the way he resolved it was, no, I will not recuse. Uh, He wrote a very stirring dissent. He said, you know, if a corporation could come to court, it's not a person. Why couldn't a mountain or a river or a valley? Because they need to be able to speak in court. And in in that chapter of the book, I actually do quote from, as you mentioned, from Dr. Seuss, the Lorax, who says, I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. Well, that was basically Douglas's theory. It's now called the rights of nature. It's never gone anywhere in the U.S. courts, but it has been enshrined in various constitutions of other countries, and various municipalities have given nature the right to sue. Most recently, there was a town out in Washington State that gave that protection to the orca whales. So Douglas was always writing for the future. He was a big dissenter. He dissented almost 500 times. And remarkably, in his dissents, about 40% of those, he was a sole dissenter which says a lot about his relationship with the court and also how he thought about his role on the court. I have to confess that line that you cite, I don't think it's his. I think he pulled it from the Law Review article that came out as he was writing his dissent. But that line, quote, if you listen very, very closely, a tree will make the exact same sounds as a corporation. Yes. Felt very on the nose in this 21st century. But I I, I I just want to say here, there's a whole story about that Law Review article because Mm -hmm. it was in process unrelated to the case, Sierra Club v. Morton, when the law professor went to his law librarian and says, is there any case where this might be applicable? And she said, yeah, there's this case in the Supreme Court. So he basically bootlegs the article to Justice Douglas, who coincidentally was writing for the USC Law Review, but on technology. So the, the article gets there. It's not yet published. And much of what you see in his opinion mirrors the article, if not quotes from it. 
but he was also reaching back to his past and his writings, his love of nature and the Sand County Almanac and various of his writings. You see all of that really captured in this one descent, but it did have many sources. And I, what I pieced together was this very unusual um, correspondence between the USC law professor and Douglas and a former USC student who had been on the law review and was then one of Douglas's clerks. And by the time the dissent is published, they finally have a citation for the law review article. So it is cited in there. But until I pieced all the papers together, no one had put together that Douglas was actually sitting there with the article as he wrote the opinion. And he wrote that dissent in about two to three hours, right after the decision. Very Douglas-like. So, Judge, like, added to your taxonomy of things that make us go, hmm, right, <laughs> to the political work and the lobbying and the extravagant cooperation with political figures and the backroom deals, there is also this ex parte communication while this case is pending. I guess I want to end on this question. You're last few pages are sort of elegiac because you talk about Douglas as a flawed hero, that in addition to, you know, all this work you've done to sort of make clear that whatever these activities were, they were problematic. But at the end of the day, he changed the world. And I think you're sitting in that tension as the book ends. And I just find myself wondering if the answer to so many of these kind of conundrums that we are in right now, we don't want judges to be trapped in a monastery. We want them to live complicated, nuanced public lives. Is there just no standard by which we can figure out whether, you know, what mattered in the end was his citizenship or his justiceness? Or is there just, we just have to live in the very uncomfortable tension that he did a bunch of things that were probably out of bounds, both, as you say, by modern ethics rules, but even the ethics rules existent at the time, but that maybe in some sense he was this too young, appointed at 40, consummate, restless genius who always had to do more. And that's just the flawed hero that he is, and we have to just live with that. You've summed it up better than I did. I, I of course, had to have some conclusion to the book. I was had many surprises as I went through it and discovered all of these things. And I certainly had a respect and admiration for what he had done to change the landscape of the United States and some of his other opinions. I mean, this is not a biography. I focus primarily on his environmental work, but he was in the majority in a number of opinions. Griswold v. Connecticut, which he authored, uh, 7-2 decision. So the question is, is there some in-between? I think there is an in-between between a monastery and Justice Douglas or Justice Frankfurter. And we have ethics principles, which we endeavor to follow. But you have to remember that I'm also looking back in history at a different time, at a very different constellation in American politics, and 
on the Supreme Court. So I felt that although I had brought this ethics lens to what he had done, I also wanted to celebrate historically what he had done and who he is. And to me, it really underscores the importance of history so that you can go back and you can ask the exact question that you just asked and frame it in terms of you know, what do we learn from history, how much of it is a product of the time, how much of it carries forward. But for me, the, the real joy was just in writing the book and putting it all together and writing in a different voice than I might write my opinions but also recognizing one of the things we can do is we can, as we know from the justices and other judges, we can write books happily. Judge Margaret McEwen has served for almost 25 years as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. The book is Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas, and it is an amazing exploration of a justice that I think we sometimes treat a little cartoonishly, and yet really, I think, by every measure, was ahead of his time. So thank you, Judge McEwen, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Dahlia. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicusatslate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicuspodcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, take good care.